BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Sif Heider, the founder of Array. I'm a wellness entrepreneur and digital creator, and this is my show, The Dream Bigger Podcast. Listen, I love dreaming big, but you know what I love more? Actually having the resources to make those big dreams happen. And hey, dreams can sometimes be private jets, but other times they can look a little something like having the best skin of your damn life or starting a successful business or delving into spirituality. So on this podcast, I chat with experts and thought leaders from different fields about their tips and tricks on doing exactly that. So let's get right into it. Hey friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Dream Bigger Podcast. So I am really excited to bring you today's episode because it pertains to a lot of questions I get asked. So if you follow me on Instagram, every week I do a series on Wednesday, whereby I ask you for your current goals and I recommend either a podcast interview I've done or a book I've read, which I think will help you. And oftentimes I get questions Two, two big questions is one, how do you get your brand into retailers? Because apparently quite a number of you are either um, budding entrepreneurs or you're thinking of starting a business. And so this is a really popular question I get. And the other question is, can you give me a 101 on raising money? And today's guest, Dave Greenfeld, the founder of Dream Pops, was actually like the perfect person to speak to all of this. So if you're not familiar with Dream Pops, I've actually spoken about it before on the podcast. It's been a hot tip in the past. It is truly my favorite ice cream brand. It is super, super clean, incredibly delicious. Like it has this nostalgic vibe. I have their, um, they're like these like dipped in chocolate, sort of like little pops. They have like a a couple of different things that they offer, but that's my favorite thing. And I actually even talked about it on Molly Sims podcast when I went on her show. So I'm really a super fan of the brand. And Dave spoke really, really eloquently about things like getting into retail, raising money, scaling a business, even just starting a business like this from scratch. And also the kind of um, issues he ran into, because as you can imagine, anything that's like food related items, especially something that's frozen comes with its own set of headaches and issues. And he speaks to all of that. So it's a really, really fun episode, super packed with information. And I think it brings you information that no other guest on this podcast has ever spoken about. So I really enjoyed this interview. And, you know, if you haven't checked out Dream Pops yet, I highly recommend you do. It is 
truly, truly like, I mean, I cannot endorse it enough. It is my favorite at home dessert. I always have it in my freezer and it is really my favorite thing. So excited to bring you this conversation with Dave. Before we dive into our chat, a couple of things. First and foremost, this week's hot tip, which is actually a new release from Mara Beauty, which as you guys know, if you've tuned into this podcast in the past or follow me on social, it is one of my favorite skincare brands. And um, this is their new Sea Silk Lip Balm. So I have both the uh, soft coral color and the color-free version of it, I guess. And Mara Beauty is really one of my favorite skincare brands. I've had the founder, Allison, on the podcast. She's a really good friend of mine. And this is just like every other product of theirs, an incredible um, addition to my beauty slash skincare routine. It is really hydrating and nourishing for the lips. It stays on for a really long time. And I just, I have it in my purse at all times. So if you're looking for a good lip balm, especially one with like a little bit of color, the soft coral one is the one for you. So check that out if you are are looking for a good lip balm. And then let me tell you guys about this week's review. So I opened up the podcast app today and I was just on my show and I saw that a new review came in, which I love seeing. And so I'm going to read this one out because it made me so happy. It comes from M782947 and it says life-changing. I have been looking for ways to better my quality of life, physical and mental health, relationships, habits, and I found it through SIF's podcast. I can't express to you how beneficial this podcast is. It's real life, practical, inspiring, and motivating content that I cannot get enough of. 10 out of 10 recommend my favorite podcast to date. I love you, Sif. This is honestly one of the nicest reviews I've seen. I saw it this morning and it genuinely made my day. So thank you. Um, This is just so lovely. And guys, if you are looking for a way to support the show, please, please take a second and rate and review the podcast. All you have to do is open the Apple podcast app, scroll down to the bottom where it says rate and review the show. Make sure you leave me a five star rating if that's what you think I deserve. And of course, make sure you leave a review. Tell me what you like about the show, what you want to see more of, who was your favorite guest. If you want to see a guest on here, let me know and tell me the kind of solo episodes you want to hear about. The more you tell me, the better I can make the show because I always shape my episodes based on feedback from you guys. So please take a second to do that if you haven't yet. And now let's welcome Dave Greenfeld to the Dream Bigger podcast. The first question I have, obviously, is where did this idea even come from? Like what spurred it? Yes, it's a crazy story. I'm a recovering investment banker, is what I like to say. So uh, suit and tie every single day sitting in the office. To be honest, it was a great learning experience, just not for me. I was lucky before iBanking to work for a guy named Jesse Itzler, Mm -hmm. who had a food and beverage incubator in 2010. He was also an early investor in Zico Coconut Water. And what he he was doing was using Facebook and Twitter at the time to, you know, basically was an early pioneer of social media marketing. And I was watching him build this incredible community around Zico and convincing customers instead of drinking Gatorade to drink coconut water. He actually had like three or four other brands at the time. He had Health Warrior, Sheets Energy Strips, a bunch of these really interesting, better for you CPG brands. And, you know, watching what he what they did with Zico, they ended up selling it to Coca-Cola. And I was like, wow, you can use social media to build global brands that compete with some of the largest food and beverage companies in the world. And it has a net positive effect on humanity in some respects. You have healthier products in the hands of more people. And it's really fun. And like, wow, that's something that eventually maybe I'd love to do. Mm -hmm. 
And so I've really been a student of the game. Like I, some of my favorite entrepreneurs are the Howard Schultzes of the world and other folks that have built these incredible brands and taken commodities and like pushed them to that next level and, uh, and reimagine them and, you know, build these, these passionate communities around food and beverage brands. So with Houlihan, which was the firm I was at, they actually moved me abroad to Milan. So I lived. Wow. Yeah. What? It was, it was epic. It was fun. So I spent two years from 2016 to 2018 in Milan, Italy, and I got to pick up Italian, which I didn't speak before. And I was surrounded by this incredible food culture. There are these, you know, merchants, artisans, so much food innovation is happening in Europe. And so every weekend, I, I knew I didn't want to be in finance. So I said, whenever I could, I would go to a food trade show or, you know, try and discover new food and beverage products all around Europe when I could. I came across the inventor of the Dream Pop. I didn't invent the Dream Pop. And I went to his food lab in Berlin and I tried the product and I was blown away. And what I was doing in, in the meantime was I have this insane sweet tooth. Like I love chocolate chip cookies, gushers, Dunkaroos, candies, you name it. And, and I went, you know, plant-based and was eating really healthy and I was looking for alternatives and substitutions. And so came across this geometric popsicle product. And one of my favorite products growing up was Dippin' Dots. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me a lot of Dippin' Dots. And so it I really does, by the way. Right. From like a form factor perspective. Totally. And I feel like when you think about certain food products, I don't know, like back to my childhood, I mentioned Dunkaroos, Gushers, High C, there are these emotional responses that you have to those nostalgic products mm -hmm. that, you know, we got really excited about and it reminded me of Dream Pops and, and I thought of that product that I tried. So tried the product and I was like, there's something really special here. And I ended up actually acquiring the technology to make that product. And I took all my savings from investment banking because I was sick of it and I was done. And I moved home and myself and my co-founder at the time, we literally started making these things in my mom's kitchen. We moved to five different commercial kitchens as we grew. And one by one, we started at Erewhon, selling in one popsicle at a time, Bristol Farms, Whole Foods. And we went from 50 or so stores to now about 4,500. Wow. And what was the length of time that it took from like the moment that you came back with this technology, like making it in your kitchen? I yeah. Like so May was. 2017 yeah. was when we just literally we threw a, a launch party where we were just passing out product to our closest friends and getting people's responses. And we really built the brand in the early days around these experiential activations. So we, you know, do an Apple pop up party at Coachella where we'd serve thousands of dream pops or we would do a, you know, a Patron would bring us into like a holiday party and we'd start passing out product. They'd pay us to come. And then we, you know, pass out Dream Pops. Okay, I actually have to get like a little, like I have to dig a little mm -hmm. deeper here. How the hell, like for like any new entrepreneurs, how do you even go about like having these partnerships with a Patron or an Apple? Yeah, so what I would say from investment banking, what we do is we create pitch decks all the time. So we're in PowerPoint and we're putting together these presentations for potential investors or acquirers. And I was doing, you know, M&A. And so I said, okay, um, I'm just going to create these decks of what I would sell to a big brand and say, look, we're creating, I would say food as an advertising vehicle. And I would pitch that to Beats by Dre or to Patron. And I'd say, look, we can make a custom flavor. We can put, you know, some nice packaging on it and you can give these out to your uh, employees. And so we had one or two great successes there and then use those to win more business. And for that first couple of years, you know, in addition to a couple of small grocery stores, we did hundreds of events and genuinely like tens of thousands of people were eating this product and loving it. And then we knew, okay, now we need to commercialize this and put it into grocery at scale to take it to the next level. And so 
when you were kind of doing almost this like this marketing play, how were you making your money? Like, was it like, yeah, like, I just want to know, like the finances behind that. Yeah. I mean, I'm a first time food entrepreneur, right? So this I, I didn't know what I was doing. And that was, to be honest, one of our like biggest blessings was everyone said, OK, you need to hire a co-packer to make your product and then put it into X, Y or Z grocery store. The problem is the Dream Pop's really unique in that shape mm-hmm. and co-packers or co-manufacturers couldn't make it. So I had to make it myself. We had to make it ourselves in my mom's kitchen and in these, you know, smaller 200 square foot facilities Mm -hmm. with these really unique molds and liquid nitrogen. So we literally would get liquid nitrogen and like lug it through into this tiny kitchen and make hand make them ourselves. How do I ask my boss for a raise? I'm so jealous of my coworkers promotion. I just don't know what to do. Is there a good way to brag about my accomplishments? Careers are complicated, and there are so many hush-hush topics we're told we can't talk about. That's why you have the Career Contessa podcast. I'm your host, Lauren McGoodwin, and each week I'm joined by experts to help you overcome your workplace woes with actionable advice that you can use today. Subscribe to the Career Contessa podcast and make progress in your career every Tuesday. Your question was, how are we making money? Mm-hmm. We would have five, ten, or twenty thousand dollar catering jobs events where someone, where Apple would pre-purchase two thousand units. We would make fifty percent margins on that. Take that extra money and buy new packaging or a new piece of equipment, and literally just keep innovating and iterating until the product was perfect for everyone. So so smart. So for someone who doesn't know what Dream Pops is, mm-hmm. explain what it is because I mean. It is truly like the best ice cream. Like I don't eat anything other than it. So it's a big that, compliment. That, that means a lot because there are so many ice cream brands. And I feel like every week there's a new one launching. So thank you. Means means a lot. So Dream Pop started as a plant-based ice cream bar that we wanted to make something as beautiful externally as it was with the ingredients that, that were powering the actual nutrition of the product. We only use coconut sugar, no stevia, no erythritol, no alternative sweeteners. We have a patent on the design. So it's really like, you know, we're product obsessed. It's like an Apple product. Like nothing looks like it. And if you think about it too, there's very few food and beverage brands where it doesn't need the packaging for you to know what it is. Mm-hmm. So Dippin' Dots was another one, right? You see a Dippin' Dot, you know what it is, but it doesn't even need to be in a pouch. So when people see that Dream Pop, they trust us. They're like, that geometric shape is the brand language. You know, we started with that Popsicle. And then about 18 months ago, we launched Dream Pop's Bites, which was Uh, really massive for us. So that was like proving a lot of people, investors, et cetera. They're like, okay, you're in Frozen, which is so hard. You can't sell online. You can't sell on Amazon. And you're only selling Popsicles. How big could this business really be? Now, our broader vision was to go after all Ameri- all desserts, cult classic desserts. So we started with the Popsicle. Dream Pops Bites is effectively a Nestle's Dib 2.0. So we took those amazing bites, which I used to eat at the movie theaters all the time, and we made, you know, chocolate-coated plant-based ice cream bites, always under 100 calories, three servings per container. And those really proved that we were a platform company, that we could look at any dessert, and reimagine it, re-engineer it. And now, and you know, I was mentioning to you next week, we're launching our first non-frozen products. So we have a candy product and more of a topping. And those are, we're, we're announcing those at Expo West. But the whole broader thesis is we want to build the next great confectionery company with all plant-based ingredients. So whether it's Hershey's, Mars, or Ferrero, we're going after any dessert experience. Incredible. I mean, so I actually thought that your bites came first because that was like my intro to the brand. And 
uh, like what an intro it was. So I know that you worked with the the food developer for mm-hmm. the popsicles. What was the product development process like for the the bites? That was all us. That so, was all you. So I won't say my, just myself. We've been I mean, amazing you team. as in you guys. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We have an amazing team. Not huge, you know, a lean team. Uh, a couple food scientists, designers, and people that came together. And, you know, this bite product really changed the business about a year and a half ago. There's something about a bonbon, which, you know, don't get me wrong, they're around, they exist, but there are less of them. It's a less competitive category Mm -hmm. because there's a million popsicles, there's a million pints of ice cream. People like snackability, they like portion control. You got to commit to an entire popsicle or entire pint. You can only, you can eat three to four bites at a time, put it back and feel pretty good about yourself. Yeah. I mean, so. it's it's an incredible product. Like it's so tasty. Like, I mean, this this interview is clearly turning into me just like raving about the brand, but like truly it's, it's an awesome product that you guys have created. So I want to talk a little bit about being told no to because so much of this has been so far, like you guys have been doing fucking awesome. But like, I know that as part of an entrepreneur's journey, especially if you're doing something maybe a little newer and like really just kind of, and you you guys are because you're really innovating in this space. Yeah. Being told no to like, what, what was your first, I guess, roadblock there? Do you remember? And how did you keep pushing past it? Yeah. The one that really comes to mind is that geometric shape we talked to so many consultants, food industry experts, veterans. We had people come from some of the biggest food companies in the world to see what we were doing, how we were handmaking these popsicles. And they 99.9% said, this is impossible. You cannot commercialize this product. It's mm. not possible to do it profitably to make, there's no business here. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful geometric shape, but good luck. One group didn't, and I have so much respect for them. They, they believed in us. And... I'll, I'll pair that with, I have a list of almost 200 investors, 187 investors. We're six years into this. That said no. And, you know, I have every response that they had. And I just keep that on my desktop as a reminder that, like, it doesn't matter how many people tell you no. I do think as long as you're open to constructive feedback and criticism and you can tweak and adjust that ball of clay, like, you can figure out how to make any product or widget work. Did you ever, when you were kind of, told no to, did you take that either criticism and like change the way you were doing things, like actually take it to like, like it was like a constructive criticism versus something that you took to heart? Yeah. You know, I think in the early days, we thought that we wanted to be, when we first launched the daily harvest of ice cream. And so we launched frozen direct to consumer Mm -hmm. in 2018 and we're selling ice cream. We were literally packaging up ice cream and shipping it all around the country. And I was so set on, we're going to be the the daily harvest of ice cream. And quickly, product was melting on people's doorsteps. The unit economics didn't scale. The cost of acquiring customers was through the roof and it wasn't coming down. And so that's where I had to take a hard look in the mirror and mm-hmm. say, we need to pivot. We need to put this product into grocery stores because the battle, you can do it. Daily Harvest did an amazing job. But that's going to require tens of millions of 20 million plus dollars. We don't have that. So let's put the product where there's less friction in the grocery store. And that decision, which, you know, was really hard because I was so obsessed with selling that vision of D2C and everything was D2C then. We're talking Warby Parker, you know, all these incredible companies away. Everyone's trying to be the D2C of X and all investors are looking for that. And that's where I said, you know what, we're going to go all in on retail. And there were a lot of people at the time that were like, 
we hate frozen and you're only going to focus on retail, that's really not sexy. Good luck. We're not going to invest in you. I mean, jokes on them. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't hold grudges, but I will say, I think we're all starting to realize over the last few years with these iOS updates and with just the fact of the matter is paid acquisition can only get you so far. And brick and mortar retail is an incredible place to sell your product. Like people still go to the grocery store, they go to Sephora, they go to Ulta, they're going into locations to purchase products. They're also buying online. So you have to win in both. And they're two very different games. And I think we're lucky now that we've failed D2C early in 2017. We've really figured out retail. Now we get a second crack at D2C and I'm very confident in how we're going to approach it. I mean, I think being omni-channel is smart. And I think like no matter what, at some point brands do have to kind of go that channel. I think that retail is like a very difficult thing to figure out personally. And I have like a lot of questions for you because I'm sure that like, first of all, you're my first FNB founder who's ever been on the podcast. And like, I know Thank that you. I'm honored. Yeah. Honored like, to be here. And it's, it's like a, it's like a whole different ball game, especially when it's an FNB product that has that shelf life and is frozen. So when it came to navigating retail, what was that process even like for you? Like, how did you scale the brand to what it is today? Because without the support of D2C, that can be something that's very challenging. Yeah, there's this like catch 22 of you want to get into a big distributor like a UNFI, a Kehi, a Rainforest, whoever it might be, but you need 20 plus retailers to already be carrying you. Wow. And then the retailers don't want to take you unless you're with the distributor. Mm -hmm. So I'll share how we kind of broke through that, I actually showed up at Bristol Farms HQ and pretended that I had a meeting um, with it. the buyer <laughs> because no one would answer my emails or my calls. And I got a shout out to Roger from Bristol Farms. I stopped him in the parking lot because they wouldn't let me come in. And I gave him the product and I said, we are really eager to break through. We are in Erewhon. Bristol would allow us to get into UNFI please try our product. He did. He believed in us. That got us enough stores to get into UNFI. And from that attraction alone, you know, we got into UNFI, got into Whole Foods. And that moment was really kind of that inception of, you know, getting into mainstream grocery retail. Holy shit. That is audacity at its finest. Wow. That's incredible. These retailers are really hard to get a hold of. And the buy, I mean, Expo West is next week. It's going to be really exciting, but it's going to be crazy because it's been a couple of years. And the point of those shows is to get in front of the buyers, you know, LinkedIn messages, direct DMs, emails, calls can only get you so far. So showing up in person, I don't think, you know, I, I would recommend people to just, you know, not necessarily follow the rules and make things happen themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely with you, by the way, because with Array, like retail isn't a big part of our strategy at all, but it's, I see it as like a brand building opportunity, right? And like partnering with the right retailers is I think just like a smart thing to do. And it gives us an opportunity to like dip our toes into like more omni-channel. But we found that, you know, it's never, we're like, it's very rarely the LinkedIn messages and the stalking online that's helped, but it's more so like us kind of basically showing up at someone's doorstep being like, hey, here's the product. You know, we're like finding someone who knows someone and sending it to them that way is like truly the only way that it works. Because I think that what you have online is amazing. And it, but I think with retail, it gets you so far sometimes, you know? Yeah, no, of course. Like you, I think you just have to be willing to do whatever it takes to make it happen. I think there, that there, that's really where in that first year, two, three years, you see talk to a lot of people that want to start businesses or companies and you know the ones that I think really end up succeeding are willing to to show up every day. So 
once you do get into retail and like, this is what's really funny because I think that younger entrepreneurs think that, okay, I'm going to get into a Whole Foods or a Sephora. And then once I'm in, like life is good. Like it's actually not like that because you have to ensure that those products are moving off their shelves and that, you know, you have the kind of traction that they're looking for. How did you, how did you experience success there? Yeah, that's the first half of the battle. Everyone thinks that, okay, now that Whole Foods accepted you into a region, like you're good to go. You know, there's so many pieces of this. Number one, you need to constantly, you get data from some of the retailers so you can see what your not, like what your velocities are, mm-hmm. what your terms per week, et cetera, are. So you're like, how fast is my product selling versus, you know, some of the other incumbents or competitors? So you're constantly tracking that data story, whether it's through a spins or another, you know, service provider or even just Whole Foods actually shares the data uh, themselves. So tracking that data is so then additionally hiring field marketing agencies like a base makers or a relentless. These types of companies will go into stores and they'll actually fix your shelf. They'll take a photo in a Slack group. And every week we have an amazing network of field marketing, you know, folks that are helping us check the shelves and I get a full uh, update on Slack and I, I'm seeing virtually all of our shelves, you know, every week, which is amazing. And then the other pieces are shopper marketing, which is, you know, whether it's pro- promotional spend, you know, every X number of months you're on promo or you're spending, you know, to for, for certain couponing or discounts or placement on Instacart or, you know, Ibotta or some, something like that. That's another lever you can pull. And then finally, there's the social media content creation and being like, hey, we just launched in Wegmans, like create content and putting that out through TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn. And how have you leveraged social media to your advantage? Because I think you do it really well. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's it's a little aggressive, I'm going to be honest. We went really big on TikTok three years ago because we had a gut feeling, you know, just saw, funny enough, we, we I was posting with our Josh who runs marketing for us. So I was just dabbling with TikTok because I had been hearing about it as musically. And I put up a few posts about with our Dream Pops product on it. And I noticed that no brands were on the platform and it got 10,000 views. And then I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, Instagram, even if I put up this incredible piece of content, the most likes or whatever I'm getting is maybe a few thousand, couple hundred likes. I just got 10,000 views. That's wild. That's a stadium's worth of people. And so I, Josh and I were just like, okay, we're going to go all in on this platform. We've got feeling about it. And so we started posting two to three times every single day for the last three years. And quickly, you know, we were, were gaining, you know, tens of thousands of followers a week wow. and getting hundreds of millions of impressions. And then we're using that data story to sell to a, you know, to retailers who are really interested about like, wow, they don't have to spend 30, 50, $100,000 a month on paid acquisition through Facebook and Instagram, they're getting organic reach in the tens of millions a month for free. And so that that also, we, I, we did that. And then we also were seeing LinkedIn's reach. And so we started personally on my LinkedIn page, I've been going very aggressive and getting 10, 20, 30,000 views a post. And the combination of those two plus Instagram and Facebook allowed us to to really generate massive brand awareness for virtually nothing. So th- I have like a bunch of follow-up questions, but First and foremost, I mean, we like I've heard like obviously like a lot of brands are now on TikTok, but how do you leverage LinkedIn as a as a brand or a brand founder? Because that's actually really interesting. I still think it's a massive missed opportunity for a lot of folks. Just thought leadership content, value add. I put out a lot of content to for other food and beverage or CPG founders. 
about exactly what we're talking about. Field marketing, actually have a, you know, a newsletter that I, I share through LinkedIn to other entrepreneurs who are looking to build their businesses and basically learn from all of my mistakes. So it's content every day about what it takes, what it's like building a CPG brand, you know, and then we'll also share innovation, wins, new retailers, updates, but we are posting on my personal LinkedIn about one to three times a day. Wow. David, it's so interesting because I feel like you are really the definition of like an entrepreneur who's like so hands-on and like, I don't know, you, you go into the areas and get your hands dirty, which is so awesome to see. Thank you. So I think a lesson for other entrepreneurs as well. You know, if you're going to delegate, you've got to be willing to do it. So for sure. I think there are a lot of people and I don't want to knock. There's a lot of VC backed companies. I mean, I'll be at trade shows. I work every trade show. I see other founders who raise a lot of money and then they have their team running it. I don't know. That's not my style. For us, it's like, Everyone's the most junior and senior person on the team because Nish and I will do literally anything and everything. Like for a very long time, all customer service calls were coming to Nish's cell phone and, you know, he would take it. I would speak to our customers and literally like there's no job that like is above us, you know, and I think that that's where the magic happens. And I know it's not scalable and like eventually you can't. And that's like my transition now is is delegating, but I do think you have to at least have done it or gotten your hands dirty if you're going to hire for it. Well, you've heard, uh, I'm sure you know Breed Hoffman, right? Mm -hmm. He says that that uh, quote, which is like, do things that don't scale. And you actually have the privilege to be able to do those things earlier on in the business. And like just being able to do it is like, I, I really do think it's very special and it teaches you so much and you get more insight, I think. It puts you in a more powerful position in the long run. Of course, you delegate when you're scaling. But yeah, I think like being able to do those things is really special when you're a smaller brand. Yeah, and if you're just outsourcing, let's use paid acquisition or paid marketing as an example. All you have is like weekly or monthly reports and you're paying a retainer every month plus commissions. So like the mistakes there are a lot more expensive. Totally. Than if you're just, okay, I'm going to learn how to spend money on Facebook or Instagram or work with someone and actually know what the return looks like on a daily or weekly basis. Higher probability of hiring successful folks to do that for you. And what about TikTok? Is it you doing it yourself as well? I kid you not. I still post on TikTok. Oh not my God. every day, but I, in the early days, two and a half, three years ago, I was, me and Josh were both posting every yeah. day. I genuinely, I, I enjoy it too, being in the platforms because it's just, I'm passionate about it and I enjoy marketing and content creation. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've posted two TikToks today for what it's worth. Okay. How are you managing your time? Because for Nish and I, we were, we started our TikTok like in 2020 when we launched the brand and like we had a lot of success, but I think one thing we've struggled with is like, we don't have the time to be in TikTok anymore. Like, how do you kind of manage your time as the company scales? Like, how are you doing the whole social media thing as well? Because I'm like having to pick and choose which platforms I can do myself. Right. So we have, I will say, we do have a, a big team of freelancers mm -hmm. that we've one-on-one, -on -one, you know, vetted and built relationships with that have created a bank of content. So all I need to do is grab some of that content at times, toss a little music on it in a, in a caption and post. I do create like my own content as well, but you can only find a, a balance of so much. The other thing I'd say is like, you have this amazing studio. You can be making content. All You are making con long form content, but like easily could have someone just shoot. There are so many people that would love to start their own podcast or that would just love to know the inner workings of what happens here that those are all TikToks. 
So smart. So I want to switch gears here a little bit because I know that a lot of my audience is really interested in raising money. It's a question that I'm asked quite often. And so since you are on the show, I thought it would be a really good opportunity to kind of pick your brain here. So first and foremost, when did you think it was a good idea to raise money? It's a great question. I think being an ex-finance person, I, you know, have, there is a leg up because you know how to structure these deals. I don't need to hire anyone to help us with fundraising like myself and Natalie, we do in-house. But I think you have to be really careful. I love VCs and we have some amazing people on board. But I think that in the early days when an idea is being built, founders can get really obsessed with like what the margin profile looks like at the beginning or how to manufacture a product when they don't have access to like specialists or experts that do it. One one tweak or adjustment in your business model can change the whole thing. So, you know, you could go from something that is losing money on a per unit basis to like you found the right co-packer. Now it's a 70% margin product. That's one introduction, one quick fix. And oftentimes you're being evaluated by a VC or by a third party investor that's looking at your metrics without that knowledge. And they'll get a lot more equity or have more leverage because you just didn't know. So something that I think is a great hack is in the early days of fundraising, I told you I met with all the VCs. And as I I came in cocky because I was an ex-banker and I thought that, of course, this makes sense, even though we're not D to C, like I can figure this out fundraising, no problem. And the truth is the retail component and the frozen component and plant-based didn't really have its moment yet. This was before Oatly went public and beyond an impossible, whereas well-known as they are now. And people were just like, I don't get it. Plant-based frozen pops just doesn't make sense. So all those people said no. And instead of going to traditional investors, I went to other founders. And I take small checks from other founders who saw the potential of the product and the brand and would add value through their network, through their know-how operating a business. And so I had all these people investing that had operating experience that helped me then improve the business model and then eventually I ended up, you know, the, the, the light, we unlocked the value in the company and got it to a point where we could raise institutional capital. I cannot stress the importance of what you just said about going to operators and raising smaller checks, because I think having other operators to lean on is a game changer. I think as an entrepreneur, things can be really lonely. And frankly speaking, like you just don't have all the answers. And if I didn't have a network of like other operators that I could lean on, I don't like, I mean, we probably still would have gotten to where we are, but like, I don't know how long it would have taken us, you know, and we'd probably have made a lot more mistakes, which other people kind of saved us from. 100%. It's, I think it's the biggest hack that you can have because even yourself, if uh, someone is starting a brand in your space, the amount that you can share based on your years of building. That that's something I'm I'm really passionate about. Now I write small seed checks in other brands and there's just I can save them years of totally. all the pain and mistakes that I made really fast. So talk to me about, you know, actually raising from institutional partners because I think that there is this it's almost like, you know, the overnight success, right? You see like the sexy headline on Mm -hmm. TechCrunch or Forbes or whatever it is, but raising money is a grind. And I don't think people know that because maybe they're not getting a look behind the curtain. So what was your process like? Can you give us like a real, like kind of like real look into what it's like? 
Yeah, you know, it's definitely like an emotional roller coaster in the sense that, you know, you have certain deal terms in your mind and how much you want to raise and who's going to be, you know, the best suitor. And then there's a number of, you know, negotiations that occur and there are compromises that have to be made. And sometimes, you know, it's whether it's more dilution or, you know, a board observer or board seat. You just need to remember that my recommendation most of the time doesn't happen is that the founders do lose leverage and take a lot of dilution because these businesses require 5, 10, 20, 50 plus million dollars of capital. And so if you raise too much up front, oftentimes you lose board control or you give away 60 or 80% of your company. So like it sounds amazing to raise 10, 20, you read the tech crunch or the, you know, Forbes headline, but is it really that amazing? Because you just built this beautiful product and brand and you handed 80% of it away. So like, I'd say stop chasing the headline, start focusing on, I, I like less like smaller checks, 50K checks, 100K, 250. Use that and like raise money over time to take those cash injections to just level up your business. And then when you're at one, two, three million dollars in top line sales, then go raise an institutional round. Really, really smart. For our listeners who don't know, what happens when you give board seats away? Yeah. So big, you know, major decisions in a company, raising more money, selling to another company, launching new products. It all varies. But when you don't have board control, they, the, the people who do dictate the future decisions and strategy of the company. Also, I just think that there's something to be said about having done it your way before you bring in outside institutional partners who may have really strong opinions about where the business should go. Of course, like the the goal is really to find the right institutional partners who kind of get your vision and you're all aligned. But like, I think having some time to do it on your own, it's it, there, there, there's just something really powerful in that as well. Yeah. And all of these, you know, there a lot of these institutional investors and VCs, they have operating partners in house that have been incredibly successful. Mm. But that playbook maybe worked in 2005 totally. or 2010. And let's remember, like, the iPhone has, hasn't existed that long. Social media has changed. We've watched Facebook explode and then decline and Instagram decline and TikTok emerge. Now people are dabbling with Discord and other places. NFTs, you know, there's, there's a lot emerging. So even within one to two years time, like the playbook changes. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. How do you identify the right institutional partners? It's a, it's like dating, you know, it's finding people for us that aligned with the long-term vision. It's pretty aggressive to like, when we launched our bites, the company thought it might be early to launch a second product when the pops were working. And so now our current investors are excited about the innovation and shelf stable with candy and confections. But if I had an investor or, you know, backers who didn't want that, that would conflict with my long-term interests. So you need to find partners that are going to back your 10, 20, 30-year vision and that truly believe in, in you and aren't just looking at quarterly numbers. And if you make a mistake or you didn't hit your numbers, they trust that you have the capabilities to stay with, you know, to, to steer the ship in the right direction and, and, and make it happen. So going back to what you said about product expansion, and I know we're jumping around a little bit, but mm-hmm. I think that it's something interesting that you touched on. When do you feel is the right time to launch new product that, that still makes sense? Because I feel like if you do this too fast and in a way that doesn't make sense, like maybe you're like 
spreading yourself across like too many different categories that make sense to you as a founder, but not to the consumer, you kind of lose the game. So how do you find that balance? Yeah, we have so many ideas. Like our mission is to take on every dessert experience. So being thoughtful in terms of like capital allocation and resources and team to support it, the sales teams to support that you have different buyers in retail for every category. I wish I could say that there was one solid answer that would be great, a blanket response. But the truth is I've seen both a number of failures with product extensions and brand expansions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and a number of successes. For us, I can share why we did it, why it made sense. Frozen is a really crowded category. We're succeeding in Frozen and we're doubling down in Frozen, but we're trying to prove to the world that we're more than just an ice cream brand. Yeah. And this is how we do it. And that's why like it it works perfectly for our brand and our vision and what we're creating, but it might not work for a number of different products or categories. It and the timing. I mean, we're six years in. That's what I was going to say. Like, you're not, it's not like you were born yesterday and like today you're going into like you're switching or like not switching, but like line extending. Like, you've been in it for a minute. We've built a digital brand in retail. Yeah. So I'm so excited to be able to actually convert like our digital community into D2C and Amazon and Thrive Market and online marketplaces where they now you have to go to the grocery store, go puff or Instacart to buy our product. Well, I will be one of those customers. <laughs> I'm very excited to support. So I want to do a rapid fire. And, uh, you know, it's the Dream Bigger podcast. So it is about equipping our listeners with some tips. Cool. So first and foremost, what was a big dream you had when you were younger that didn't work out? Yeah, I uh, wanted to be a hip hop artist. And I, <laughs> I, I'm actually not a bad rapper. I will be honest. Maybe so, that's the next TikTok. Yes, there you go. <laughs> I like to say I spit ice cream bars, but I'm, I'm joking. But I did put out an album and a mixtape and I still love music and hip hop, but I had to uh, set that one aside. Very, very interesting and very cool, but it Mm -hmm. shows your creativity from a younger age, which is very cool. What's one book you think our listeners should read? One of my favorites is is Pour Your Heart Into It by Howard Schultz. And he talks about building that brand one cup at a time. That's such an important message. Everyone wants the, you know, arbitrage, the the, the higher, you know, the, the best paid acquisition firm and spend a bunch of money on Facebook and Instagram and have amazing like CAC and LTV, you know, metrics and then scale your business and sell it. The truth is though, like when you just build a product that's five to 10 times better that you really put your soul into, that is incredible. And you communicate your story and you have a reason for actually being there. You're not just trying to flip something, you know, it tends to, it tends to scale. Very cool. And what is a habit that's a non-negotiable for you? Great question. So for I'll, I'll pull it up because I actually, I every Sunday I meet with a life coach named Kai, which mm-hmm. is amazing. But I text him every single day. And for, let's see, 1,172 days straight, I have meditated and done my practice. That's so, incredible. Thank you. I'm a meditation junkie as well. And I love to hear that I've not done it for quite that long, but wow, incredible. So non-negotiable will not go to sleep until I've either done it in the beginning of the day or the end of the day. It's about a 15 minute practice, breath work, manifestation, and gratitude. I love that. Do you use anything specific or just self-guided? Self-guided. 
Love it. David, tell everyone where they can find you. Yes. Well, you can find us at dreampops.com. You can go at dreampops. Check us out in the next couple of weeks. We've got some really exciting candy products, confection products launching. If you're at Expo West, come by our booth, N244. And, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, all at dreampops or at Dave underscore Greeny. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved the episode and feel like it brought you value, don't forget to rate the show and leave a review. It takes five seconds and really helps the show grow so I can keep bringing on awesome guests. If you want to follow me behind the scenes, you can find me on Instagram at Sif And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I drop new episodes every Tuesday, so come hang with me and shoot the shit with some really smart people, learn and unlearn, and have a lot of fun. See you next week.